Hey there, On The Deal fans. Sam Thornton here, owner of DL Sports and host of On The Deal podcast with a quick word before this episode gets underway. What I want you guys to do before this episode begins is to pull out your phone and follow the DL Sports Instagram page with the handle at DLSportsCom. That's at DLSportsCom. The account has a wide range of content, including sports updates, breaking news, podcast snippets, and more. So do me a favor and hit the follow button right now. And if you want to follow some of my own personal content, make sure to hit the follow button on my Twitter handle at Sam C. Thornton. Thanks, guys. And enjoy this episode. On today's episode of On the DL podcast, we have NFL Week 15 recap. This was bar none one of the most insane NFL weekends of all time. All time finishes to several of these games are going to go into almost everything NFL wise. Just an all-around 10 out of 10 sports weekend. We had the World Cup final on Saturday morning. I'll give my thoughts and analysis on that, of course. And to wrap up the show, we're going to do an interview with sports betting writer for Gambling.com, Chris Wassel. There's so much to dive into for this episode. So guys, let's not waste any time and get the show underway. Welcome to episode number 18 of On The Deal Podcast, and I'm trying to find the words here to set up this picture perfectly for you guys, trying to transition into a full recap of NFL Week 15, but honestly, you cannot paint this picture all the way because it was absolute insanity. We're going to go in chronological order of the games, or the ones that caught my eye the most at least, and we start with Colts and Vikings on Saturday. Matt Ryan. You need to retire from the NFL. And Jeff Saturday, while I and thousands of people were rooting for you as head coach of the Indianapolis Colts, there is absolutely no chance that he will return as the head coach for them next season. The Colts were up 33-0 at half in Minnesota and go on to lose the game 39-36 in overtime, the largest comeback in NFL history. The Vikings score five touchdowns in the second half to force overtime. And before we go any further, I need to shout out my Vikings minus three and a half betters because I'm here with you. That was a crazy ride. And whoever bet on the Indianapolis Colts that day, credit to you. You you pulled that one out. You deserve it. But the Vikings, we're going to dive into them first, and then we're going to go into the Colts on this analysis here. They now hold an 11-3 and record, have secured the NFC North division, and are officially the worst 11-win team in the history of the league. They've won 10 of their games by only one score, and if they were playing a team like the Dallas Cowboys, who blew them out on Thanksgiving, it would have been their second blowout loss in three weeks. The Vikings won this game in the air, which is something they didn't do at all in the first half, which is surprising. I'm not sure why you wouldn't before, with Justin Jefferson arguably the best wide receiver in the game, you have a great second in Adam Thielen, a great third in K.J. Osborne, who had a career day. But hey, Kirk Cousins, he made it work. When you're going up against Stephon Gilmore instead of Trevon Diggs, it's pretty easy to say that your success rate will be a little bit higher than that of the Dallas Cowboys. This game was absolutely, absolutely more about the efforts of the Colts than the heroics of the Vikings. And I'm not even slightly impressed by their comeback which is crazy to say. It was the largest comeback in NFL history. 
and I'm totally coming across as a hater here, but listen, these are my thoughts. This is my podcast. This is my show. Cousins had over 400 yards in the second half. Let that sink in. That's why this is more on the Colts' defense. I'm not ready to say that the Vikings are a legitimate threat in the NFC playoffs. Now, do I think they could win their first game? Sure, I'll say yes. I'll say yes to that. But what really sold me was the game against the Cowboys, and I keep going back to them. You can't erase that from your memory, especially when you have three or four teams that are so top-heavy in that side of the bracket in the NFC. You're going to compare those teams all together all before the playoffs begin. That's all the media are going to talk about, those three or four teams. The Vikings are the worst of those four teams, including the Cowboys, the Eagles, and the 49ers. They just are. There's no argument to that. As for Indianapolis, what can you even say if you're Matt Ryan? 28-3 in the Super Bowl, the worst choke in Super Bowl history, largest comeback in Super Bowl history, and then you have now 33-0, the largest comeback ever in NFL history. That's just a double whammy for you. Against the Vikings, you failed to get fourth down conversions at the end of the game. And while, yes, you have to be better, we could talk about how this just sucks for him all day long. But this falls on the shoulders of Jeff Saturday. The entire first half, the Colts just had admirable field position, and they capitalized with aggressive and quite phenomenal play calling. The second half, they looked like a a completely different team. This was literally two games in one. They settled for field goals in the first half, which, you know, might have been the dagger in all of it. One on fourth and goal from the eight, another on fourth and four from the 10, and fourth and three from the nine. And I could see why, you know, you settle for field goals in one or maybe two of them. But, you know, that was a rare opportunity for a team to punish a defense and close this game out completely. And we already thought the game was closed out. But obviously, we saw what happened, in the, what happened in the second half. The Colts have the second worst scoring offense in the NFL. When you have those opportunities to just punch it in and get the game over with, give your offense some confidence, not kicking those field goals, the Colts could have used that. And while the offense in the second half should have been better, no doubt, they should have just ran the ball down their throat and milked the clock as much as possible. I just don't understand how the defense can't hold it down for a few drives. I, I, literally, it's mind-boggling. But the Vikings got better and better. Every stop their defense made it just propel their whole team around. Just increased and increased. And that was only the start of an electrifying weekend. The Saturday night game, we had Dolphins at Bills. Highly anticipated game, divisional game in the snow. Bills get the win with a game-winning field goal from Tyler Bass, 32-29 final. Initial thoughts. The Dolphins, although on a three-game losing skid, they looked much better than their games against the Chargers and the 49ers on that West Coast swing. Tua played decently well. Before the game started and throughout the week, I kept thinking, you know, man, if the Dolphins don't win this game, they could be in trouble with potentially missing the postseason. And I'm officially retracting that statement. I think I actually think they're going to win out the rest of the season with their last three games of the year because they looked much better than I thought they would. 
I really thought the snow would scare them off, but they lived up to the task. If you're a Dolphins fan, you have to be counting this game as a win in terms of morale of the team. And with Mike McDaniel's shirt in practice during the week that said, I wish it were colder, I was just like, all right, man, you're, you're, you're trying too hard. There was actually a tweet that said, Mike McDaniel coaches like his dad left for town for a few weeks and he's running the business until he gets back. That's probably the most accurate statement of all time. He, he's got that Kendall Roy in him for my succession watchers out there. The next three for the Dolphins, like I said, very promising. They have the Patriots, the Jets, and the Packers. I think they're going to win two or maybe all three of those games. I wouldn't be surprised if they do win all three. Considering their identity right now compared to all those teams on that schedule, we're going to get into the Patriots' identity after that horrific loss this weekend. The Jets are a mess right now. The Packers have won two in a row. They're starting to trend a little bit upwards, but they're not going anywhere. I don't see them... I do not see them winning out for the rest of the year. And those losses to the 49ers and Chargers, they didn't stick to their guns. That was not their identity all season with two guys out of the entire project of that offense. Tyree Kill and Jalen Waddle were not utilized enough in those two losses on the West Coast. They just weren't. You find them in this game during a six-point swing in the fourth, 14 unanswered points. You have a real chance to take this game in Buffalo. But the Bills, with their win, are now 11-3, a legitimate 11-3 record with a franchise that, again, right now we can argue the best team in the league. And this win was all about their quarterback and Josh Allen. He was going ballistic in the first half. Three touchdowns for over 200 yards, and then you have a few mishaps in the second. But ultimately, the Buffalo Bills, Josh Allen, the Dolphins. He decided to morph into a bulldozer, like he always does. In his physical presence, sometimes it really makes me reminisce on prime Cam Newton. Except Allen is, as we know, a far better passer. And Cam Newton had his moments here and there. But he has the same energy as Cam did. It's that morale of, I'm going to take it myself and do what I do best. And that's when. There was some refing controversy on this game-winning drive, 45 seconds left. Pass interference call on the Dolphins had brought the Bills all the way down to their 10-yard line. Everybody was pissed. I would be too. And this wasn't the first questionable call of the weekend, but there were former players chatting about it on Twitter. I know Julian Edelman was one of them, and he also spoke about the Patriots-Raiders touchdown call. And I know RG3 was all over the Commanders play at the end too. Listen, it sucks. It sucks. When the refs decide a game like that, it's horrible. It's not what you want to see as fans. It's not what you want to see as players. Not what you want to see as coaches, owners. Everybody doesn't want to see it. But guess what? At the end of the day, this is never going to change. I accepted the NFL refing fate in 2019 with the infamous no call on the Rams for pass interference in the playoffs against the Saints. You just have to hope that you aren't on the side of that fate. It's their job to get it right. Most of the time, they do get it right. It's not an easy job, but sometimes it happens. Next one, we have Lions at Jets. Two teams battling it out for playoff hopes. This, this was an incredible game. What a great game this was. Lions 20, Jets 17. The Detroit Lions have gone 6-1 and one after starting the year 1-6. and six. And what's most impressive about it is that they're winning games on the road. They're just outside of the playoff picture right now but face Carolina and the Panthers next week 
That should be a great game, too, with the Panthers still in the hunt for a playoff spot, believe it or not. But a huge reason why they're winning on the road has been because of their run defense. They allowed 161 yards per game on the ground in their first nine games of the year. Since then, it's down to 84. Their offense has been capable of greatness since last year with the emergence of Amon Ross St. Brown, and they have one of the best run games in the league right now, combo with Williams and Swift. And who would have guessed that Jared Goff would be a top 10 quarterback in efficiency rating right now? Jamal Williams, let's go back to him real quick. He has 15 touchdowns. 15. I think he had three last year, or maybe three in his whole career. That's just, his emergence has been outstanding for that Detroit Lions team. When you talk about the Jets, the Jets really excelled in the air. And it's not a surprise that the Lions secondary is the weakest spot in their entire roster. But even so, if you look back to their game on Thanksgiving against the Bills, they almost won that game, despite being torn up by Isaiah McKenzie. That was the big Isaiah McKenzie game for Buffalo. That was his huge coming out party. And he's their three guy. I'm getting sidetracked by the fact that there was just an unbelievable finish to this game. Unbelievable. Another unbelievable finish. Touchdown from right. They're tied in down the field in a fourth and inches situation with 158 left. Takes it to the house against an elite Jets defense. That was just a beauty of a play call from their offensive coordinator, Ben Johnson, who used Amon Ross St. Brown as a decoy with a simple play action. If you look at this on film, I wish I had you know a little tablet on me right now that I could show you guys. They sent St. Brown into motion to sway C.J. Mosley, one of their best defenders, over the middle, committed to him thinking that they would just convert on the play, go for a quick, easy two yards on that fourth and inches situation. But Goff faked them with his eyes. And at the last second, turns to his left, finds right wide open down the field, takes it to the house. And that's the type of play where, a couple years ago, the Lions couldn't even dream of pulling off a play like that with their offensive line. Because you need quality protection to get that off. And, you know, quality time to get that playoff. It's absolutely adapted. How can you just not love this team? The Jets, on the other hand, they might have just seen their playoff hopes slip out of the window. I'm not a fan of how they keep alternating quarterbacks here. And while Mike White was hurt and Wilson actually played pretty well, they really need Brees Hall in that lineup. They really need someone to pound the rock on the ground. I think if he were healthy, they would be a 9 or 10 win team already. When he was in their lineup, I was such an advocate for that team. They were so fun to watch. They have a must-win situation on Thursday Night Football with the team we're about to discuss next, the Jacksonville Jaguars, and I cannot wait for that game on Thursday night. It might be the best one of the season. I thought this was the most entertaining game of the week. Jaguars 40, Cowboys 34, final in overtime. Wow, I've got a lot of thoughts on this game for both sides. Both of these teams, there's a lot to dive into, but let's start with the Cowboys. Cowboys fans. Dak Prescott is not going to win you a Super Bowl. All he does is throw interceptions, and it was perfectly on cue because he threw the game-winning pick six for the Jaguars. Here's something you probably didn't know. Since week seven of the NFL season, Prescott has 10 interceptions, which is the most in the NFL out of any quarterback. Out of any quarterback. This has nothing to do with his injury. It was a thumb for crying out loud. 
this has everything to do with him down the stretch of a game. Because what's funny is he played outstanding in the first half. I got to give him credit. 15 for 16. Then went 8 for 14 in the second with two INTs. But the question is, was it more about the efforts of the Jaguars or the downfall of the Cowboys? It was the Jags. It was always the Jags. Look, I'm actually going to come to Dallas's defense here. They had two of their top three corners out. They had Leighton Vander Esch out in the middle of the game, one of their best linebackers. That led to an opportunity for the Jags to pounce on them. No pun intended in the second half. You know, they made adjustments at half. They realized that those guys needed to be targeted. But that just gives more credit to the Jags for realizing their mistakes in the first half and capitalizing on that holes pre- on the holes present. Trevor Lawrence started beaming balls down the field. And Zay Jones, what an underrated player he is. He was having a day on the ground, just giving it to the Dallas run defense. I'm telling you guys right now, the Jacksonville Jaguars are going to win the AFC South division, and they are going to make the playoffs and win their first game. And I'm willing to take it a notch higher. I think both the Jaguars and the Detroit Lions are going to make the playoffs and both win their first game in the playoffs. Let me let you guys sit on that thought. It all has to do with the play from Trevor Lawrence. He looks like an overall number one pick finally, who had the worst possible situation in his rookie year. Great coaching staff now, Doug Peterson. He's becoming a real star for this team and looks like a guy who can win you a playoff game. They are one game behind the Titans, who are fading fast right now. They lost to Los Angeles over the weekend. They have the head-to-head tiebreaker in hand. They face each other in week 18, so get ready for that one. Because I guarantee you both teams will be 8-8 eight and eight once it comes to then. Even if it's not, what a game that's going to be. Like I said, for the Cowboys, you miss some guys on the defensive side of the ball. But at the end of the day, Dak did give you a 17-point lead. That should be enough when you're considered one of the best defenses in the league. And overall, historically, a great one. With that being said, a lot of people knew where their minds were going to that second half because they have a date with the Philadelphia Eagles next week in Dallas at home. They have been circling that date on their calendar since they lost to them earlier in the season. And they simply overlooked the Jaguars, who I think are a playoff team. It wasn't just them, though, because the Eagles also struggled in Chicago against the Bears, only won by five points in a very hard-fought game. And breaking news from today, Jalen Hurts, MVP, Yes, MVP most likely won't be playing in this game. That means Gardner Minshew is going to have to step in and who knows, let's get some Minshew magic up in here. Put the house on Dallas minus six. I don't care if they barely beat the Texans. I don't care if they lost this game. This is a perfect bounce back game. This is the biggest game of the year for them. This game is bigger than the playoffs for them. And when they do win big at home, you're not going to hear the end of it from their fan base. I guarantee that. Craziest game of the week belongs to Raiders and Patriots. Raiders 30, Patriots 24. I really only have to mention the elephant in the room. And it was single-handedly the greatest ending in NFL history. Better than the Miami Miracle. Better than anything I've ever seen in my entire life watching football. One of the best endings in sports. It really was. I've never seen anything like it before. I'm sure a lot of people saw it, so I'll just come on out and say, what the hell was Jacoby Myers thinking? All the man had to do was just run the ball out of bounds or go down, finish the game in overtime. 
you see the lateral from Ramondre Stevenson, and then Jacoby Myers is like, all right, let's keep the game-winning heroics here. Let's keep it rolling. Oh, there's Mac Jones back there. Yeah, he's definitely a threat in the open field. He could take it to the house. Whoop. Chandler Jones, interception. Stiff arms the hell out of Mac Jones. I mean, sat him down, which makes the play even better and takes it to the house for the win. Speechless. Speechless. You cannot make this stuff up. Jacoby Myers, credit to him. He did take full accountability for that mistake, and the plan he came out and said earlier was to down the ball, head to overtime. He was trying to be a hero. Those were his words. But if you're the Patriots, while this sucks, and the horrible touchdown call confirmation to tie the game sucks too, that was just an unreal touchdown call. Even after the review, there was clear, crystal clear evidence that the Raiders player was out of bounds. I can't remember who caught it off the top of my head, but don't let all those things take you away from the miscommunication between Matt Patricia and Mac Jones because that is a legitimate problem going on up there. I know they had 24 points. That's pretty decent for them on the year. Raiders' secondary is horrible. The Raiders are not a good defense. The Patriots weren't going to make a Super Bowl run. If they had a competent offensive coordinator, they could have won a playoff game in my mind. Absolutely. That was a mistake even in the offseason when they stalled for so long to find an offensive coordinator for Mac Jones. Like, you don't think your young quarterback needs to build chemistry with an offensive coordinator in training camp? Okay, look what we're seeing now. It's really crazy because Mac never threw tantrums on the field at Alabama. I don't, maybe I'm mistaken. He was very tame. And it could have been the saving effect on him to not fire back, you know, keep it in-house, I don't even know if that's the case because he has Bill Belichick with him now, and those are two very similar personalities. All of it has to do with Patricia and their chemistry. You never saw that with Sark at Alabama. Honestly, you need a major change right now over the offseason, for sure. But if Texas were to have another subpar season or even a horrible season with Steve Sarkeesian as the head coach and they end up canning him, If he's ever on the table again, the Patriots need to give that man a call as soon as possible because that chemistry they had in 2020 was unbelievable. Unbelievable. Despite having all those weapons on offense. It was unbelievable. Moving on. Bengals and Buccaneers. Bengals 34, Buccaneers 23. The NFC South blows. They are horrible. Before we hop into this analysis of the game, the NFC South champion right now might have seven wins. The Bucks lead with a 6-8 and eight record, and the other three teams are all sitting at 5-9 and nine in second place. Anybody, and I mean anybody, could take this division. The Bucks were up 17-0 in the first half, and the entire time, I knew that Joe Burrow was sitting on that sideline thinking, yeah, we're winning this game. He was not going to roll over. Ever since that AFC Championship game last season against the Chiefs, They have been the comeback kings. Even so, this one was uncharted territory against the greatest of all time. Tom Brady entering this game was 89-0 when leading by 17 points in a home game. Unlike the Colts game, the Bucs literally, it just looked like they wanted to give this one away. They had five turnovers, I mean back-to-back-to-back-to-back-to-back on drives. It seemed endless. Resulted in 34 straight points. From Cincinnati. Just unreal. And yes, the Bengals had to capitalize on those turnovers, of course. 
but they came at the most timely opportunities and they were just all in the Bucks side of the field. So how hard is it to really punch in some of those points? We know what sort of team the Bengals are from top to bottom. They're just too good not to convert on those. And the Bengals defense had some words for Brady after the game. I believe Brady told the media that the Bengals defense was quote unquote fairly tough to play against. That came back to him in the second half with two interceptions and a fumble. The first time he's done that since 2014. I think I've been on the record either here on the show or on my Twitter account saying if Tom Brady were to sneak into the playoffs, you still do not want to face him. And I'm not so sure about that anymore. The cold hard truth is it's really not even on him. He's he's climbing in age as we know. His weapons suck, to put it lightly. I'm not going to use fancy language here. They are horrible. They suck. Mike Evans is his only reliable guy. His offensive line is terrible. The once dominant defense from the 2020 Super Bowl season is no longer. It's no more. It's gone. It's decimated. I think they hadn't gotten an interception in several weeks until Carlton Davis picked the one off in the first half. I think that's actually true. The recipe, when you look at their entire team on both sides of the ball, if you can't put up points and you can't force turnovers consistently, you're not going anywhere. I, I do think they're still going to win this terrible division, and this will probably be Brady's final season, but they're not going to win a playoff game. And for those out there who are still placing bets on the Tampa Bay Buccaneers, <laughs> credit to you because you must see something that I don't. I learned my lesson after about week nine. I really did. I was just like, I've, I've had enough. I've had enough. I can't, I can't do it anymore. Last one I want to talk about, it was Sunday Night Football. It was also my bet of the week. I told everybody to take Commanders minus five. And apologies for that from the bottom of my heart. I really am sorry about that, especially in that first half performance from Washington. But the Giants get the win 20-12 to 12 over Washington. Daniel Jones gets his first win in prime time. He has his first win, 1-9 in, in his prime time career. There's lots to talk about in this game, but let's show some love to the New York Giants first because especially in two guys in particular, and those two guys are Saquon Barkley and Kayvon Thibodeau. Saquon Barkley looks like the Penn State Saquon Barkley. He also looks like the guy they leaned on in the first few weeks of the season. He is just, he's such an impressive back. He really is. He's so elusive in the run game. And I love how he just spams the B button on his controller, that little spin move that gets the linebackers all mixed up and, and the pinching corners. It gets them every single time. He's very good, of course, and he was very outspoken before the game towards his team. He's a captain after all. From what I heard, he told the team, if you want to prove yourself as a guy in this league, you need to have a career game tonight. Because this was a must win for both sides, honestly, for playoff hopes down the line. And I think it's safe to say that Kayvon Thibodeau Heard him loud and clear because, holy shit, this guy is absolutely insane. He was their first round pick out of Oregon in this year's draft. A breakout game from him. 12 tackles, one sack, three tackles for a loss, and a forced fumble that resulted in a scoop and score for his own touchdown. He was a menace all night long. Just insane on Sunday night. And before the game, a reporter asked him if he loves to play in primetime games. And he responded with, primetime loves me. Shows you the confidence he has. He's a baller. He's going to be a problem for years to come. Only 22 years old. I'm older than Kayvon Thibodeau. That's just weird to say. Although they had a great game, 
I'm still not sold on this team at the end of the day. They're just too inconsistent. But you could also look at it from the mindset of, of, okay, we have the toughest division in football, right? The NFC East this year, and it was crazy to think about that. A lot of these teams are beating each other up. A lot of their losses are against one another, which could make them a grittier opponent in the playoffs. The thing with the Giants, though, is they've beaten a lot of inferior opponents in their non-divisional games. And down the stretch of the year, they're losing to teams like the Lions. They get blown out by really good teams like the Eagles. I know that's a divisional game, but still, I think they're a playoff team, but they won't win their first game against a high seed. The Commanders are just as confusing because they've also beat some bad teams like the Packers, the Colts, the Texans, the Falcons. But they are the only team to beat the Eagles. They really needed that game too, the one on Sunday night against the Giants, because they have the 49ers, the Browns, and the Cowboys left. And we know how the Cowboys play against them. And the 49ers look unstoppable right now. Let's not fail to mention another horrible call that happened this weekend, especially in this game. The refs made a awful call. Might have been the worst of the weekend in this game. Commanders are in scoring position, down eight, final minute of the game. Terry McLaurin, their wide receiver, star wide receiver, lined up in a little bit of an awkward stance. He's a little bit behind the line of scrimmage. And for those who don't know, receivers need to be lined up on the line of scrimmage in order to be in the correct formation. If they aren't, it's considered an illegal formation and a flag will be called. So McLaurin is lined up. He looks at the sideline ref next to him, gives him a thumbs up as to say, hey, am I good here? Am I good? Am I lined up good? The ref gives him a sign back, says, yep, you're good to go. Everything's good. Looks good to me. And the commanders hand it off to Brian Robinson into the end zone. Touchdown. Could see a tie game here, perhaps overtime. My bet of the week could have been alive. Until the same ref who McLaurin was talking to throws a flag for illegal formation on him. And the thing that's fishy about it is, one, Usually the refs almost always actually tell the receivers if they're good or not, even if they don't ask. And two, he was reaching for the flag immediately after their exchange and pulled it out extremely fast. It's like he didn't even care. It costed them the game. It really did. I hate, I hate to be a person who talks down about the refs because, let's, let's be honest, people, they have a hard job. A lot of this rides on them. It's not an easy job. In this case, this weekend... It was awful. Post-game, McLaurin gave reporters more details about the exchange. Didn't give really his emotional thoughts because he didn't want to get fined. But it's pretty sad how these events over the weekend changed a lot of outcomes of not just this game, but multiple games. You had the Dolphins pass interference. You had the Raiders confirmed touchdown. And then you had this call. I'm going to be coming out with an article later today, maybe tomorrow, about the refs this season, including those calls, especially this weekend. We, we you know We've seen the roughing the passer calls in the past and how this trend this season is really in particular been quite strange, quite strange. So make sure you go read that for my full breakdown and my analysis on that. It should be out by the time you are listening to this episode. Before we head into our interview, of course, I have some comments and thoughts on the World Cup final over the weekend. Right off the rip, that was the greatest sporting event I have ever seen in my entire life from an objective viewpoint it was absolutely the greatest sporting game or event whatever you want to title it of all time 
It was incredible. From the storyline of the game beforehand to the actual events that took place in that game, it was just electric. First, the GOAT debate is over. Argentina wins the World Cup in penalty kicks, and Lionel Messi is officially the greatest soccer player of all time. And that's coming from a Ronaldo guy myself, a Manchester United fan, and myself. Seven Ballon d'Ors, the most all-time and now World Cup title. He played incredible in that final, and it was so amazing to see a player just so deserving check that final box after losing their first game of the tournament to Saudi Arabia, if people remember that. So now they are the second team to win the World Cup after losing their opening group stage match, and the other squad was actually Spain in 2010, so not even that long ago. So while you can go on and on about Messi, I personally thought that the man of the match for Argentina was their goalkeeper, Emilio Martinez. That save he had in the 120th minute against the French player wide open. I forgot who the French player was. Wide open in the box. That save with his, with his leg, the kick save, the goalie kick save, that kind of play is right up there with LeBron's Game 7 block on Andre Iguodala against the Golden State Warriors. Like, seriously, it might have even been better. That might have been the single clutchest play and greatest sporting play of all time. And he was clearly the calmest player on the pitch during the penalty shootout as well. There was a Twitter thread that I actually dove into about his mental strategy throughout the penalty shootout. And honestly, it's crazy to think about. The, you know, the subtlest things that he would do to throw off the French players. Like, for example, he stood inside the goalie box during the, the coin flip to decide who gets to shoot first, which side they're shooting on. And he let the French goalie walk and meet him into the box as to display a mentality of, welcome to my home. This is my box. You're entering my zone here. And then he would grab the ball before each French player would walk up and shoot. And, you know, he would throw it away. He would toss it, you know, 10 yards to the left or 10 yards to the right. So the French player had to walk all the way over to retrieve it. It was just like, you're nothing to me. He was just dominating the French team with mind games against them. He was awesome. But the man who caught the eye of myself and maybe even more in this game and throughout the entire tournament was Kylian Mbappe. He was the sole reason I placed a future on France to win this World Cup. It was really the combination of him and Karim Benzema, the latest Ballon d'Or winner, who if he had been healthy in this game, in this entire tournament, could have been another outcome. And then you have to mention, of course, you have N'Golo Kante as well, who was injured, couldn't play. But I don't play the horseshoes and hand grenades game here. Kylian Mbappe was nothing short of incredible. He single-handedly willed this French team to penalty kicks after going out 2-0 in this game. And then he had another goal in extra time, another penalty kick that he sunk in in the shootout. At one point late in the game, he almost diced up the entire Argentina back half inside the box. And I'm just like sitting there with my mouth open. Like, what is this? What is this sorcery that this man is possessing right now? He was playing out of his mind. And I'm going to have to say it now. After what I saw him do in the World Cup, he is currently the best player in the world. This is not a GOAT discussion. Right now, he is the best player. Let's debate it. There's him. There's Benzema. There's Erling Holland, who unfortunately might not ever make a trip to the World Cup with Norway. And then there's Mohamed Salah, who plays for Liverpool, of course. I think it's between him and Erling Holland, But Mbappe is an overall better skilled player. He has more of a bag 
if you want to talk about it in NBA terms. Holland is a dominant scorer, the best scoring threat in the world, absolutely. But if I'm starting a franchise, I'm taking Kylian Mbappe every single day of the week. We really need him to shift over to the Premier League so that you can just see him against those type of dudes. Can you imagine him on a Manchester United or an Arsenal going up against Man City and Erling Holland multiple times a year? Or if he was on Manchester United going up against Arsenal and Liverpool as well? He almost left last summer. We all thought he was going to go to Real Madrid, but it looks like he's going to be PSG forever. That's his forever home. But anyways, that was a magnificent tournament. It couldn't have been any more entertaining, although we wish it had been. Although I think a lot of people wish it hadn't been in Qatar with all the you know sketchy stuff going out going on over there, you know deaths occurring on the constructions of the stadiums, you know ethical things, ethical reasons, no alcohol, just you know just a mess. It was all that backstory was just a mess, man. We 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 really, I don't know why FIFA in the first place even bid them the World Cup. It was just a mess. The next one, thankfully, is going to be in North America. It's going to be a combination between. United States, Canada, and Mexico, so that's going to be awesome. Maybe get to check off your, if you have a bucket list going to sporting events, the World Cup could be on your bucket list soon in 2026. And I'm also glad that this tournament only happens once every four years because if it were every year, it would totally ruin it. It's just like the Olympics. You don't want to watch the Olympics every single year. When it's on every two years or so, you could say, hey, hey, I'll sit down here and watch, um, you know, I'll watch uh, uphill skiing for a little bit, cross-country skiing for a little bit. I don't know anything about it, but it looks cool. It's just, it's the same energy with that. Everybody comes together, you know, every two to four years, and we can just sit down and enjoy all the atmosphere. And that's what makes this tournament so great. All right, guys, now we're going to head into our interview with sports betting writer Chris Wassel. Great conversation with him about sports betting trends. And for you NHL fans out there, we had a lot to say about the NHL season and sort of our predictions moving forward, betting wise and just analytically with the game. So without further delay, here is Chris Wassel. Okay, ladies and gentlemen, we are now welcomed and joined on by a very special guest. It is gambling.com sports betting writer Chris Wassel. Has covered the NHL and sports betting for many years, along with fantasy hockey, former beat writer for the New Jersey Devils. Has written for outlets ranging from USA Today and beyond. Chris, it's a pleasure to have you on, man. How's it going on your end? Hey, it's pretty nice here. We're we're waiting for the Arctic to hit. Um, anybody you know want to send like care baskets? Uh, no, no, no. Who am I kidding? I I I love I I love the cold. So uh, bring 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 on the winter. Bring on the hockey. And as always, let's roll. Awesome. Well, first, I'm just very curious about your career as a writer. What made you get into the industry? What made you intrigued with sports betting to begin with? And where did your love for hockey and the NHL in particular sort of originate from? You know, the go to go backwards and then sort of forwards. My love for hockey came from my dad. Um, when when I was when I was little, my dad just happened to flip on Channel 9 in, in, in the New York uh, City area, which kind of gives my age away, too, because. Yeah, it was the it was the early '80s, and it was the you know first year of the Devils, and I'm like, that looks cool. I want to play hockey, and my my dad immediately just looked at me and, and did the face palm, like just because even then, unfortunately, hockey equipment was expensive. 
Mm-hmm. So my got dad that found right. a bunch of secondhand equipment and was like, you know what? You want to play it? Go ahead. My brother, uh, who was four years older at the time, was like, you know what? I want to play too. And sort of like went through the ranks, not quite together because, again, I was eight. He was 12. And just enjoyed the living daylights out of the sport. Uh, the writing came a little bit later and a way more unexpected than I thought throughout throughout high school basically any English course I took I got drilled by every single English teacher you need to be a writer you need to be a writer this is all I heard for the last three years of high school was you need to be a writer you write brilliantly and they would give me a hard time on anything I wrote because they knew I could write even better than I was already I didn't think anything of it. I blew them off. I'm a, I'm a jock. I do this. I do that. You know, um, I can play in the band. I can, you know, do whatever. Never thought about writing. Get, get to start playing for higher and higher levels, start playing semi-pro, uh, had scouts starting to look at me Didn't think anything of it then either. I was like, no, still don't want to write. You know, I can, I could do it. I did little journals and stuff. For background got to it was about a little just past my 18th birthday it was summer summer league yes summer league of all things get my skate caught in a dry patch of ice i played in an old arena that was actually open like a dome it was like the old jerry world with with the a half open dome mm-hmm. so in the summer it was kind of it was unique in its own way um, that was to keep the humidity kind of everything flowing so they could run the condensers and you could have ice even in the summer. Unfortunately, hit a cement patch. My skate stopped. My foot kept going at full speed, which was probably about 20 miles per hour. And you can, anybody listening can figure out what happened next. Oh, goodness. My ankle did things it should not have done. It broke in a way that. Oh, oh, oh man, Sam. It, it, uh, uh, let, let, let's put it this way. I'm laying on the ice in agonizing pain. I know it hurts. Not screaming. People could hear the break. The scout for the Devils at the time, who was ironically like a family friend of Chris Lamorello, literally said later, I have never heard a pop that loud of a broken bone. All the ligaments were torn to everything. I asked my dad, how bad is it? He's like, don't look. You know what I did? I looked. Yeah, compound fracture, um, torn ligaments. I even tore the Achilles. I blew everything out. I I don't eat. My summer, my summer was gone. I couldn't move. I couldn't do anything. So naturally, guess what happened? I started writing more. And that's 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 how that's how the love began. Obviously, um, sports betting was illegal. It was the old football and hockey tickets where you you circled like a little kid with the pen, you know, with the pen. And you you made picks based on that. If you want a certain amount, you want to, you know, you've got nine out of 10, 10 out of 10, you won a certain amount of money. That's that's where the betting actually started. Um, and 
the two never quite combined together till about maybe what, five, six years ago. And like it made it made too much sense. Um, I had a guy's like, hey, you should write about this. You're you're a good you're a good sports writer. You know numbers. You're awesome with math. We'll give you a start. Then it was it wasn't for pay because you know, again, the PAPSA hadn't been quite repealed yet. They were mm -hmm. still fighting it in New Jersey. Um, Senator Ray Lesniak, then then Governor Chris Christie, uh, were trying to push arguments for uh, through through the Jersey courts, then then the Supreme Court that hey, something needs to give, and that fifteen year fight did result in the eventual repeal, and as a result, gambling got into New Jersey, which was awesome. I'm not going to lie. This was probably one of those things where you never expected it to happen. And when it did, the floodgates instantly opened. I mean, New Jersey was it. It was it was insane. Um, I was able to write about it. I was able to do still do some beat writing on on the on the side, which was nice. And it's one of those things where that love hasn't gone away. No matter how busy I am, it hasn't gone away, and that that's why it all it all ties in from from those beginning days of when I was little playing hockey to now. It is never it has never waned. Yeah, that's a terrific story. Uh, it's really cool how your story really has sort of meshed together through all of your sort of passions. They're now like all in one, which is really. Awesome crazy to see right what you're doing now yeah absolutely and so, i backed and i backdoored through you know there's there's people who i have the utmost respect for that went went to school got a journalism degree paid their dues i can be the first one to say and to show people hey you know what if you write well you know the sport well enough and you're not a total douche <laughs> You actually can succeed in this business and enjoy what you're doing. It's not, how do I put this, Sam? It's not hard, but it's hard work. And it sounds like a total contradiction, but it's really not. Because if you love what you're doing, that hard work isn't all that difficult. It feels like second nature. Oh, yeah. I can totally relate with that with so many different things. I can go on and on about that kind of stuff. Yep. Um a team that is working hard this season. I want to go into the NHL season because it's been a great season so far. I know, like I said before, you were on the Devils beat for a while. Tell me your thoughts on the Devils season right now. I mean, I had them making the playoffs this year, but they are an absolute wagon out there led by that first line of Jack Hughes, Jesper Brat, Nico Heischner and company. They're also in the third period with my Carolina Hurricanes right now. I know I gave you a little bit of trash talk before we hopped on together. Uh, they're up 3-0 right now in the third. Uh, but the two top teams in the Metro Division going at it, the lead is on the line in this game. Uh, but I definitely want to hear your analysis and thoughts on them so far this year. It's one thing that we had kind of hinted at th throughout. Uh, all this team needed was a few saves here and there. Just a, just a few. Look. They play a brand of hockey that's become sign of times in 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 the early 2020s. For the lack of a, for better or for worse, this is how hockey is played now. It is played with you know up up and down, 
scoring chances galore and you have to expect your goalie to be able to make a few saves that would not normally happen in the last few years with New Jersey. The only reason why they were not a playoff team or close was because they just could not get that for a variety of reasons, whether it was health, whether it was the goaltender wasn't ready to come back, what, whatever the case may be, they just could not get those saves. And people made the joke, of course, if they got league average goaltending, they would be a playoff team. Well, now, unfortunately, Sam league average goaltending is just above 900. So maybe, (laughs) maybe it is, or maybe it's enough because you see some ridiculous uh, spreads in save percentage and expected save percentage uh, among a lot of goalies in the league that you would never normally see this year. And that's because, let's face it, teams are zeroing in on scoring chances. They're, they're zeroing in on allowing them, or for the lack of a better term, generating shots. So you're going to have some off-the-wall numbers from time to time. I mean, look. We said this even with Carolina. They're a top five offense in this league. Shooting at 8.3% at even strength right now. Wait, league average is 10. There is no way this can continue. And I said this to somebody. I was like, wait till it catches up even a little bit. They're not going to get, maybe they don't get up to the league shooting average. But if they get even to 9.2, 9.3, somewhere close to that, you're looking at a team that can score 300 goals in a season. That's not that, not that difficult to just project. And obviously a team like that, then you have a team like Pittsburgh who can still score at, at will when they, when, when they're healthy. Um, there's a lot of teams that just aren't shooting at a rate right now. And then there's teams that are Tampa, the Tampa is what 11.6 at even strength. I mean, and they're one of the few teams that could pull that off because they almost have to. Um, obviously, throw out tonight, throw out, throw out Christmas week completely because this is this is just one of those awful weeks where it's it's insanely bad. You have seven plus games every night, and then you have that thirteen game Friday where it's just like, oh come on, there's ten teams on a back. You really. At this point, it's one of those things where, like like I said to you from the beginning, the Devils need a break. You could, you could see it. It's obvious. They cannot wait for, for Christmas break. You need to get guys like Bastion back. Um, when Bastion went down, the Devils, I think, are going to be 3-5-2 and two since he went down to injury. He was the real glue to that fourth line. It allowed, unfortunately, the Devils are a finely tuned team, Sam. One or two pieces go out, they it's it. They they break down. And that's the that's the reality of a team team that's like them. Um Patrick Kane said it best when Chicago played it in New Jersey recently. They're like us. They're like us that year that we broke we broke through and got to the conference final. We had stretches like this where we could not win a game. And then we went on a 10 game streak. Mm-hmm. Where we were nine and one, we went eight and two, but we had stretches where we lost seven out of eight. I mean, there's a couple of them. It's just nobody really noticed it because we were such a young team. Now everything is so microanalyzed that every little every little downturn is the end of the world. Like if I look at the Devils fan base tonight one more time, I'll scream. <laughs> it's just one of those things. Yeah, well, it's interesting that you talk about them being sort of a fine tune, you know, 
team uh, with that, you know, the fourth line missing piece to your, you know, that's your glue guy of that fourth line. Um, you know, that's going to be a problem come postseason time if that is a reality. I know with the Hurricanes, they were plagued with injuries last year going into the postseason. And what's a positive sign for them is, you know, Sebastian Ajo has been out the last six or seven games and they've won every single game without him, which has been a very positive sign for the Carolina Hurricanes in that sense. Um, you know, the Devils, they are just, I knew they were bound to slow down at some point. I'm honestly not too worried about them down the line. I think that they're still absolutely a cup contender at this point. And, um, you know, from the fan base standpoint of the New Jersey Devils, like you just have to be happy with, you know, the situation that you're in right now. I mean, it's incredible what they're playing. Uh, the level that they're playing at is incredible. And, you know, they're young assets that they have you knew eventually with all those draft picks it was going to come to life at some point um but i want to also get your thoughts on sort of placing wagers on teams so far this season who are some of your nhl teams that you like to place wagers on at the moment i mean you think about teams like like the devils the bruins have won myself a decent profit so far this season that's an obvious one especially when they're at home uh but there's also some scrappier teams out there uh, like with the puck line spread such as you know the arizona coyotes of all teams who play in a barn with 2,000 fans packed out you know with with college students from arizona state everyone wrote them off before the season and while yes they're not a fantastic squad they give everybody they play you know a a decent fight and they and they compete every night you also have player props of course so who are some teams slash guys that you've been a fan of so far this year this has been fun all right so the irony is arizona has been right around 500 against the spread which is awesome for a team that you didn't think would be anywhere where near near that level the funny part is last night was the first time they were favored against the team mm-hmm. on the money line. The Canadians, correct? They lost. So I took the I took the Canadians at plus one fifteen last night and won. People are like that is an absolute prick move. And I'm like, <laughs> yeah, but it works. I was like, because they actually felt what it was like to have have that pressure. In contrast to early in the season where Toronto was favored eleven times and lost ten, they only hit the puck line once. In their first eleven games, it was pretty. It was pretty crazy. You had to figure. You had to figure it was going to flip eventually, and it did. Um, favorite favorite teams. I mean, oddly enough, usually usually for me from a from a betting standpoint, early in the season, it was definitely the L.A. Kings over thing things like that. You notice a team that just they couldn't defend for anything, but God, they were fun. Yeah, you know, you know, the Blues, the Blues early season streak, the Flames early season, you know, where you start, you started seeing, and that's where you picked up on kind of this yo-yo effect where it was just like, you know, you know, you know, you know where everything was just going up and down and all over the place. You just had a, t- you just had to time it right. Uh, later, in the, later in the, you know, season now, it, of course, player props. The, the the Mitch Marner 23 game scoring streak. Mm-hmm. Um, right now the, the 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 fun one, Josh Morrissey of all people, 10 game point streak. Who knew? I mean, you know, of, of all things, a Rick Bonus team. You have a team that actually has an offense, even with Connor Hellebuck ill tonight. Um, Paige Thompson, not a fluke, for example. 
the most excellent player prop around right now is probably big as, as he's affectionately called in Buffalo big bird, because let's face it. He has a wingspan that is utter ridiculousness. So you figure any kind of skating speed and his ability to box out players in front of the net, which is, it's a lot of, it's funny to watch. He's incredible. Uh, as, As somebody put it to me, it's like, I wish I was six, seven and had that kind of wingspan and his speed because he is a fast skater. I, I know people think that's no, no, he's not. But if you watch him isolate it, um, one of the TNT broadcasts, I forgot who, I forgot which one said it. It might've even been Gretzky. He's like, he's fat. And it's like, you know what this exasperated look like? He's faster than I thought. Like it doesn't look like he's skating fast, but he actually is. Um, so he's been good. Of course, the one you know you gotta pick on. Oh, Chicago! Any team playing against them on the puck line, they've lost. They have lost on the puck line twelve of their last sixteen. Obviously, there's that one fourteen and one streak, which is just, um, but you know among props. The Chicago point prop at this point, you probably can. I think bookies out there and any book book site should just pay you right now because that's 66 and a half. No, they're not getting there. They're just not. There's no way they're getting there, especially when, once the inevitable happens where Patrick Kane is traded and a couple of the other pieces go, it, it's it's not going to. They're on pace for 50 points, Sam. <laughs> pace for 50 points now. That's pretty sobering. I mean, even if they go on a hot streak or two, they get to what sixty. Just awful. So, so Just like awful. I said, the props are there. Um, it's for this time of year, though. It's tough. It's going to be tough. I, I don't think people realize, like you know, these these cappers that are on streaks right now. You don't realize what you're going to come out of from now up until about the All Star break. Uh, where you're going to have kind of these mixed yo-yo schedules and teams playing on on back-to-backs. You're starting to get into the actual time of the year where we don't have these three- and four-day off breaks anymore. Um, and that's where now you're going to really see, like, hmm, well, what can I pick on? What 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 props can I kind of, you know, go back to? Uh, Nathan McKinnon is skating. As of as of uh, earlier this afternoon, it's kind of fun, kind of fun to see. I'm not going to lie because it's like that Nathan McKinnon shot prop, you know, was you know starting starting to become a, a nice trend again, uh, like it like it was last season. So there, there's there's hope there. There's there's so much so much to pick on in the in in the league right now that you know when is Ovi going to score 801? For example, you know, mm-hmm. it's like. It, it's gonna probably happen tomorrow night. <laughs> Just call it a hunch. It's it's sort of inevitable that I'm about to bring them up. Uh, you kind of mentioned them earlier, Chris, but the Toronto Maple Leafs. Uh, is this perhaps the year? Uh, we've been saying it over the last few seasons, but is it actually different? I can't believe I'm even asking you this question because it's so silly. Uh, but, you know, Mitch Marner's point streak 23 points, you know, that's a franchise record, lost it on Thursday in a 3-1 loss to the Rangers. Um, like I said, franchise record, just amazing stuff they're putting together right now. Austin Matthews is as great as ever. I mean, is it actually, could it be different 
this time in Toronto? Could, could they get out of the first round at least? They might, but then again, they might play Tampa again. Mm-hmm. They might play... Uh, all right. They're not going to play Boston. Uh, they're not going to... They're going to be two or three in that division. Um, so any ideas of them trying to slip back to play Boston probably isn't going going to happen either. So uh, could they get out of the first round? This is probably their best shot. It really is. If they're going if they're going to do it, it has to be this year otherwise you have you have to make wholesale changes again. I mean, you just you just have to. Um they had the team last year, they they got very unlucky. It, you have to call it for what it is. It wasn't like their goaltending was bad in 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 that in that first round last year. People have to realize that it wasn't bad. It's just they could not score that crucial goal in game seven. Mm-hmm. That happens. They didn't choke last year for I, I look, I, I heard people, oh, they choke. They did not choke. They did not choke. They played a team that won two Stanley Cups previously. That was not going to go down easily. That has a championship pedigree. They didn't choke. Get get over it, people. Just just get over it. They they ran into a team that just found a way to win. Was Toronto the better team in that in that matchup? Yes. Sometimes the better team does not win. It's that simple. Yeah, absolutely. And I think they. I still right now, like people are kind of viewing Tampa as an under the radar team, despite like what they're putting together this season. I mean, they still have a lot of those same guys who are championship caliber players. Uh, you know, I, as a Toronto Maple Leafs fan, would not want to see them again. We know how Vazzy yep. p- performs yeah, in the playoffs as always. Your um, big thing with Tampa Bay right now is they're waiting for Sorelli to come back. Yeah, and he's such a, and I'm pretty sure John Cooper has been on the record as saying like that is his favorite player on the entire roster, which is just nuts when you look at their roster on paper, top to bottom. It's crazy, but he he's like that. He's like that sort of like guy that just he has it. He has the ability to play with the young guys. He has the ability to play with the older guys and blend in. He he can shoot from the first line down to the third line whenever they need. need it, he's just that type of. Guy. He is their younger Palat, but mm-hmm. with a with a little more talent. Let's be honest. I mean, he just has you know, he has that knack to to score when it's needed, and he has that knack to play defense when it's needed, and to be that rock at such a young age. It's pretty scary. I mean, and Toronto doesn't have that in the playoffs. They don't have that. They don't have that to lean on because there isn't that success. And until they have that success, t- taste of success, we don't really know what they're going, what's going to happen. I think if they get past the first round, they easily get to the conference finals this year. They're gonna, they're gonna defeat a Boston in a playoff series. It's one of those weird things. They get over that hump. It, it's, it's who knows? I mean, could they win the Stanley Cup? All right, all right. Let's 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 pump <laughs> let's pump the brakes here. That's not going to happen because let's face it, they they will run out of steam as far as their team defense and goaltending, uh, un- unfortunately. But is the talent there? Yes, I still think they need to add somebody, um, not so much from a defensive standpoint, but from more of a stability standpoint 
they need to get that bottom six together a little bit better. Mm -hmm. And then you could talk about winning the Stanley Cup. Yes, for sure. Uh, quickly, uh, we're starting to run out of time here. I know you're big into NHL rumors. Uh, is there anything out there that you know of brewing under the table or maybe uh, some predictions that, you're for, that you foresee for teams with holes looking for a run in the postseason as the deadline is sort of starting to creep up on us here? Um, you know, you talked about uh, or you mentioned at least Patrick Kane. We saw he might be on the move over the offseason in the summertime. Do you see him perhaps making a move? Anybody else that comes to mind for you? Kane is the big one. Uh, obviously, you're going to look at you're going to look at teams that can have to make a three way deal to afford him. Range, you know, Rangers. Uh, you know, you could go up and down the line. He he wants to play. He he's not going to play in Buffalo. We can eliminate Buffalo. Uh, that's just the reality. He doesn't want the pressure of playing there. I I get it. And Buffalo's not quite there yet anyway. Um, you know, the usual suspects. Any but you know, like I said, Rangers at crazy enough avalanche, crazier yet, lightning. I mean, look, if a team if a team can pull it off and find ways to injure people with little picks and axes and whatever, uh yeah, they're going to find a way to afford Patrick Kane. He is going to be the most sought after guy be coming before March 3rd. Obviously not the only one. You have assets from Chicago too. I mean, you have Athanasio, you have Max Domi, you have players that are going to go for for a lesser rate. Um, you know, you go start looking up and down lineups, and you know where 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 the rumors could begin. But right right now, Sam, it's that roster freeze. So, uh, and I'm not kidding. Everything goes beat writers on down. That that mouth is zippered shut. You'll notice the rumors are mostly stuff that is regurgitated from either the off season or the first part of the season. And come come the new year, you're going to see a lot lot more things starting to flow out because look, you know, there's teams that are obviously going to make moves. You're going to have Anaheim making a move, Brock Besser, Bet Be Besser and Horvat is still going to be. You know, which one gets moved first? I, I know Horvat's going to be the one that is ultimately moved. Yeah. But there's still uh, a part of me that thinks Besser goes, some, goes somewhere too. Maybe not trade deadline, but maybe in the summer. I know it's crazy in, in that idea, but it's very possible. Yes. Uh, well, I definitely need to have you on again because I have a lot more to ask you about. Uh, but that's all I have for you as of right now. Chris, thanks so much uh, oh, for your you. time. This was a blast. Guys, make sure you guys go follow Chris on Twitter and read some of his stuff online if you want to make some extra cash last minute before the holiday season is over. Chris, I appreciate you, man. Thank you so much. Uh, not a problem, Sam. Anytime at all. All right, ladies and gents, that does it for this episode of On The Deal Podcast. As always, I truly, truly appreciate the support, especially through the first 18 episodes. We're getting up to 20 now. Really excited about that. Thank you guys so much for listening. Share this episode with your friends. Post it on your social media pages. And we will be back next week with another episode.